Welcome to Feeding 2030, a podcast about food and climate change. Today we're going to start talking to producers about how they think climate change is going to impact on them. But first of all, what do we know about where our food comes from and who produces it? Now, this is an issue that I know is pretty important to some people, but I thought we'd see what you had to say first. Well, I'm dating someone who's really into that, so I do know a lot about um, where the food comes from, um, which region in Australia, what I'm eating's from. So I'm quite aware of that. I don't think I know enough, to be perfectly honest, and I think I, that you know that would be uh, a general response for many. I think, um, yeah, we need to know more. Well, <laughs> not enough. I, I'm ashamed to say that I usually shop at Coles. Um, I'd like to put this down to the fact that I'm a poor uni student and I don't have a car here in Canberra, otherwise I would definitely go to a farmer's market and not put anything in plastic packages, just take a basket or a, a canvas bag and go get my locally sourced food. But um, yeah, I'm well aware that I, I don't have the best habits in regard to that. <laughs> to be honest, as a poor student, very little. I don't know much about the food chain before it gets to Coles. And uh, ideally I would be buying from organic wholesalers who grow it themselves. But, on a tight budget, it's quite difficult. I try to find out as much as I can about the, where the food comes from. I like to do a lot of shopping at farmer's markets and things like that. But I mean, yeah, when you're buying processed food from a big supermarket, it's really hard to tell. So it seems that everyone's feeling a little bit lost as to where their food comes from and who produces it. So I'm going to talk to someone who knows a lot about producing food and the people who produce it. I'd like to introduce you to Tammy Jonas. She's a free-range pig farmer from near Dalesford in central Victoria. And she's not your typical farmer who started out as a family far- with a family farm. She's got a bit of a story to tell, and I think I'll let her talk for herself. Okay, so well, we've, we've been on the farm just over five years now. Um, and the move to the country was, was two-part. It was um, that we wanted to be on the land ourselves for some time. Yeah. And the other part was the idea of using the farm as a, a platform for change to show what can be done on small acreage and how animals can be raised properly. And then, um, I guess in short, about two years after getting here, I got swept into the newly formed Food Sovereignty Alliance, which um, uh, is fighting for everybody's right to determine our own food and agriculture systems. And that was also at about the same time that we started being hammered by the regulator, so, um, so it's timely. And, uh, and yeah, we just joined our voice to the others who were trying to start working for radical food systems reform. Something I guess I've felt passionately about since I was 19, but worked on very actively in the last decade. Now, I'm having a bit of a chuckle there because Tammy's talking about the regulator. She's had a pretty well-documented tussle with the um, meat and livestock regulator down in Victoria. So I'm not going to talk about that with her today but I would recommend you checking her blog out, which documents it all in quite high detail, um, if you want to know more about what's going on there. So let's hear more about the pigs and the other animals on Tammy's farm. Yeah, so we're, John I Farms is a really small, I actually refer to us as a micro farm. We're on 69 lush volcanic acres and outside of Galesford, and we have a herd of 14,002 boars. You normally count pig herds in, in sows, Yep. And so what that means is the herd is up to around about 100, 110 at any given time. So by, by most standards, that's a very small herd. It allows us to process up to 16 a month pigs. 
Um, but it really averages between 10 and 16 a month. And then we also have cattle. Um, those are not rare breed. I forgot to mention that the pigs are large, rare breed large black um, because we're part of the movement of trying to save uh, the heritage breed to maintain genetic diversity in livestock, just as we know is important with cropping and loss of biodiversity in any space is not good for planet or, or the soil or our capacity to keep feeding ourselves. Yeah, so, so the cattle are not rare breeds. Well, some of them are. They're some belted Galloway, but they're, they're quite a motley mix of what we pick up from other growers in the region. And so we process one steer a month, which are smaller even than the pigs. And then we yeah. built an on-farm boating room, a butcher shop here on the farm three years ago. And okay. we crowdfunded for that and raised $27,500. And now I am the chief butcher, the mistress of meat three. <laughs> so a bit of a journey for a veg- ex-vegetarian. Yep, it sure has been. <laughs> and that's right, I know, I understand meat in really great detail now, and which is pretty funny for a form of vegetarian. But uh, yeah, so we, we do all of our own, which we don't slaughter on farm people, those two terms confused. They still have to be taken to an abattoir because of the regulations, but we do the butchery of the carcasses here. And by supply chain, that gives us um, greater profitability, but it also gives us greater confidence in the product from start to finish, like literally product to plate, because we're we're in charge. That makes a huge, huge difference to it does. what you're producing. Oh, yeah. also in terms of sales, so we're we're predominantly a CSA, community supported agriculture, with members. Um, and so we have 90 members who get a monthly bag. They subscribe for a year yep. in advance, um, and that gives us enormous security in what our income looks like for the year ahead, as well as the opportunity to educate our community and learn from them what they want from us. It's a, a very connected model. Okay, and with with your CSA members, whereabouts are they, and what, where do they come from? What sort of people are they? About half of them are in Melbourne. So well, actually, yep. exactly half. So 45 are in Melbourne. And the households, we sell to very few restaurants. Just easier. We like selling to households and providing access to free-range pork for the families that are trying to find it. But yes, about half are in Melbourne and I deliver to, I've got it down now actually, to just five hubs that I deliver to once a month. Um, They're a mixture. And then the other half are here in the region. So everywhere from, I've just pulled back from Bendigo. Now we don't go for the northern Castlemaine anymore. Ah. And that's because I've got demand here closer and I don't need to make that trip up to Bendigo. So we would love for the for all of it to be within sort of fifty Ks of us if we could. That would be ideal. But we're we're also conscious that there's a you know, needful market of people who want ethically raised meat in the city and if we all went for fifty Ks only they'd never access any of it. Yes. So it's kind of a balancing act of how to do that. But they're they're a mix. So we've got everything from the people you, people would expect we sell to, which is, you know, like Older couples with plenty of income who aren't afraid of how much they need to spend on their meat, right down to single mums on pensions who kind of follow that slow meat mantra of eat better meat less. And so they don't have a lot to spend on meat, but they just choose to only spend it on on stuff like ours. So my next question for Tammy was, how are you going to cope with climate change and what strategies have you implemented to deal with it? Well, the very climate variability that we've already encountered it just mm-hmm. in our mere five years, um, which we know is at least, well, everyone tells us is certainly um, part of climate change, has already been an issue. Like we uh, we should be a fairly water secure farm. We have five dams. We have three or two rainwater tanks for the house. We've got another big tank that we pump bore water to to water the pigs. For the size operation we are, we should have plenty of water. 
but this last summer through to autumn, we yeah. we came close. Like it was after two dry years, it was and a winter where our dams never filled. Yeah. It was it was dicey. The extreme heat that's coming with that too for a pig farmer is really yeah. risky. It puts a lot more pressure on us when there's when there's intense hot weather since pigs pigs can't sweat. Um, yeah, that's huge. Shade yeah. and water, those things are very important. And in a changing climate, it's also really hard to get trees to grow because you've got to water them to get them to grow. And if you're running low on water, it's really hard to do that. So what sort of, um, you've talked about being fairly secure in um, your water supplies. What other things do you have to import into the farm? What do you have to buy into the farm? The main thing that we bring into the farm is feed. for the, And yep. we don't, most of that we don't buy. It's actually spent okay. through grain from the local brewery in Woodend, Holgate. And so, but yeah, that's about, 60 to 80 percent of the pigs feed at any given time it's really good and it makes yeah. farming much more viable when you're sourcing so-called waste streams to feed your animals rather than buying in commercial pellets so we don't buy in much pellet at all and we have we actually have an end goal to stop buying any commercially raised grain for the animals because we don't actually think it's a sustainable system to be feeding animals um, grain that was raised just for animal feed as you would know something like uh, over 50 percent of the world's grain production yes. is for animal feed and that's a travesty. Exactly. Yeah, um, I was at a I was at a conference actually the uh where was it? at a cooperatives conference in Kingscliff and the grain farmers in WA who yeah. have the cooperative CDH I think it's called. They right. they have almost all the grain farmers in WA are part of that cooperative. They export ninety five percent of what they grow overseas yep. and the vast majority of it they said is for animal feed. It's way more than 50%. It was like, it was again like 90%. That's a huge amount yeah. of grain going and, to and feed animals. So, what, what sort of grains are things like wheat or a bit of a mix of. Well, I imagine the main ones would be wheat and barley. Um, wheat and barley, I, yeah. I don't think we have a lot of maize production in Australia compared with no. somewhere like America. Where do you get your information on how it's going to affect you in your area? Well, yes and no. I mean, as you know, with science, the information is varied and it depends on what research is sort of not only done but then allowed to be released to the public because there are a lot of vested interests around um so i i mean personally we source our news from about a million sources Um, a lot of it through social media um rather than going directly to news sources that's what i do and i'm very connected to both conventional and alternative farming circles so whether everything from sort of land care or the local agribusiness group They're all trying to share climate adaptation strategies and that sort of thing. Before we go any further, we should probably explain what we mean by climate adaptation. And to talk about that, here's Professor Mark Howden, who we'll be hearing more from later. Well, climate adaptation is just what we as humans do in a sense, um, but it's just focusing on climate and climate change. So in in, in its broad sense, uh, climate adaptation is simply changing what we do to get what we want in the face of a changing climate. And whether those are the big conventional guys or whether it's the people saying, hang on, you guys, we actually don't need to just adapt, we need to radically change what we're doing, I read sources from all of them. My final question for Tammy was, what's your climate adaptation plan? How are you planning on adapting to a changing climate? It's a good question. Um, I think, I think for us, I wouldn't, we don't have something written out as a climate adaptation plan uh, for yep. the farm, yep. but we certainly talk a lot about 
um, the strategies for constantly improving our water security and for ways that we can get more trees in our paddocks, both for a number of reasons, because that's also very good for our paddocks, obviously, um, yeah. and can create perennial fodder for the pigs as well to stop our reliance on commercial grain. And that yeah. will also provide more shade for the pigs. So um, it's a very multi-pronged strategy. And yes, I guess water security and shade are the two biggest things. I have to say, though, if there was, um, because we're reliant mostly on waste stream feed for the pigs, that aspect of climate change, the reduction in, in yields from the conventional grain growers and things, we're weaning ourselves away from that system. We don't anticipate being um, dramatically affected by the ways that conventional agriculture is probably going to be affected. I asked Tammy how this compared to other mainstream pig farmers and if they'd be reliant on more conventional sources of grain that were more susceptible to climate change. A hundred percent reliant, actually. Very few of them are tapped into a local waste stream because the quantities don't serve them. They need more. Wow. Okay, so that's really going to, in in terms of their output, that's going to hugely impact on their price, I imagine, in the long term. Well, it is. And one of the things I heard at the Pan Pacific Pork Expo earlier this year as well was that they're working on more uh, like cooling facilities for the sheds. So they're, they're relying more on fossil fuels to cool the sheds more for as it gets hotter. And you're like, what right. a chicken and an egg problem we have here, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know, right? Just yeah, let that yeah. one sink in for a while. So by being, by being small and actually letting pigs do what pigs are meant to do, you're, you're, you're eliminating that whole problem. Effectively, yep. by, by planting shade and, and having good access to water. Yeah, and, and putting 10,000 pigs in a shed so you can imagine the heat <laughs> in there is pretty serious. I asked Tammy if she had anything else she wanted to add about climate change and how they were going to deal with it. I guess the thing that strikes me from, from some of what we've already talked about is that farms like ours are already trying to work with, with variability and with yep. risk in very different ways to the old conventional models by not yep. building monocultures and by having strong relationships with whether it's our suppliers, like the brewery that we get our grain from, or yeah. whether it's the CSA member at the other end who I let know we've had a fall in production and will they stand by us. We, we're building, like, like a healthy ecology, we're building much more resilient systems. So the idea is that we are prepared for things to go really pear-shaped, whether it's because of climate change or because of a, an economic crisis in society, or whatever whatever issue may be, or a fertility crisis in the herd, like we actually had this year. You just build diverse and resilient systems to tolerate those kind of impacts, just like a good, diverse ecosystem. So that's Tammy's story. And she's talked a lot about being a diverse sort of small farm. And that gives her the luxury of being able to prepare for climate change. Now, next episode, we're going to hear a little bit more about a more traditional farmer. And just because you're a traditional farmer doesn't mean you're not affected by climate change and that you don't have to adapt to it. We're going to hear the story of Jason Smith and his very intrepid herd of dairy cows. So until next time, here's a little bit more about how you feel about food and the people who produce it. Thanks again. Please like our Facebook page. And thanks again to the Duckdown Pickers for our intro and outro. Thank you very much. What do you know about where your food comes from and who produces it? Not as much as I should, and that's definitely my own fault for not researching. I try to, as much as I can, go through the grocery store and get stuff that's approved, whether it's meat, whether it's RSPCA approved, but then again, how do I actually know that that stuff is what they say it is? So unfortunately, I wish I knew more, but I just don't. Not too much, actually, especially when you're in the supermarket. You never really know if it's been produced in Australia or if it's been produced elsewhere. Um, 
and I'm a terrible person when it comes to a lot of things. I really try and buy the milk that's from the farmer, dairy, and all that kind of thing. But there's so many other things that we pick up off the shelf that are boxed and packaged that you have no idea where it's come from and, and what processes have been involved in it. Now cold bread, butter beans, and you across the table. Eating beans and making love as long as I am able. Pulling corn and cotton too, and when the day is over, ride me with your crazy fool and love.